It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one if you find it of interest. I hope you will share it with a friend. Today, I have uh, an interesting guest. Alana Newhouse is the editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine, uh, an online uh, resource that is uh, perhaps unfamiliar to you, but is mostly uh, uh, appealing to Jewish audiences. It talks a lot about different issues that are important to that community. Uh, But it also has really become uh, a central uh, hub for a lot of conversation about the nature of American life in this particular moment. During the pandemic, I started to read it every day, and it's a site that I recommend to you. You can find it at tabletmag.com. It's uh, an interesting collection of views, and uh, one of the most particularly interesting voices there is Alana Newhouse, who's written a couple pieces about uh, the brokenness of America's experience that I think of as being kind of defining pieces for our moment. Uh, They reflect an insight into uh, American culture that I think is largely absent from uh, our, you know, day-to-day conversation about the nature of American politics. Alana Newhouse, coming up next. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news, twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Alana Newhouse, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. So before uh, we get started with our conversation today, uh, I'm not sure that all of my listeners would necessarily be all that familiar with what you've built at Tablet. I wonder if you could talk for just a moment about the, the idea behind the publication, where it came from, and tell us a little bit of your story in, in starting it up. Oh, thanks so much. Um, Tablet started at... 13 and a half years ago. Um, and the idea originally behind the site was it, 13 years ago was when we thought the internet was really great and it was going to be a force for only good in the world. Um, and if you remember back, way back then, I really loved the idea the of time, building up the long, long ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, I was really excited to build, a outlet that would cover Jewish life and culture um, that would be um, internet first, basically internet native. Um, And so that it would would enable us to connect communities and people who are invested in that conversation around the world in a way that uh, no other outlet had previously been able to do. And but also allow us to sort of apply really good journalistic values to cover a community that is complicated and that engages with the larger world in ways that are nuanced and um, textured. And of course, what we didn't realize was that the, uh, the years of tablet tablets first decade or decade and a half was going to overlap with both the collapse in American journalism and also some pretty radical changes inside of Jewish communal life 
Um, all of which ended up meaning in a funny way that we became objectively speaking, if not internally or how we feel, we became a kind of general interest magazine um, because we were covering issues of identity inside of America. Um, and because the issue of identity inside of America started to become the issue of America or one of the primary ways that we talked about political discourse and social life, um, everything we covered seemed to be about broader American society and, uh, and life. So tablet is still, still, we, we are fundamentally a magazine that, um, is rooted inside of Jewish life and culture and identity. Um, but to look at us, we, we can seem like from the outside that we're like, we're a general magazine. I think that a lot of people who may not have been kind of the, the typical audience uh, for a tablet when it started out, uh, have come to read it uh, in recent years because of the excellent quality of writing the political essays that you've run uh, and, and a lot of uh, really accomplished uh, authors and writers who you have, have published and featured. Um, but I think that the first point where I started to see tablet uh, go viral was, uh, you know, get get the kind of uh, attention uh, that you don't typically see for for journals of the the kind of you know intellectual conversation uh, necessarily get was your own piece uh, that ran uh, called Everything Is Broken, which uh, I certainly you know recall sending to uh, you know a couple dozen people saying that they needed to read it. And also having it kind of overlap within multiple friend groups where the political consultants that I was talking to from, you know, Louisiana and from Florida were talking about it. And then the uh, the people who are more in the, you know, the policymaking space were talking about it. The people who were not even, you know, uh, all that engaged in the in the humdrum of, of daily politics were talking about it. And it was because it hit this note of the idea of, of brokenness as being a defining aspect of the American experience. And before we get to your latest piece that follows up on a number of these points, I wonder how you came to that original conclusion. Um, people can find everything is broken at uh, tablets website, which is tabletmag.com. Uh, the, the thing that I think is sort of a defining element of it is your opening anecdote about uh the discovery that the uh, and the conversation that you have around the medical system in America that with the conclusion that the system itself is broken and then having the question turned back around to you on why the media is broken. Uh, to, what was it that really clicked in your head uh, that made that something that was a defining aspect of American life at this moment uh, versus any of the other kind of themes that other writers have touched on? I had a, experience trying to diagnose my son, um, who had what I perceived were pretty obvious medical problems, um, and developmental problems starting at birth. Um, and I, my father was a doctor and my mother-in-law is a doctor. I grew up in a family of doctors. Um, the world that I grew up in was a world in which if someone was struggling to help her child, at some point, someone would take her hand and help her figure this out. 
like a human being would actually get involved. Um, and I kept getting punted from what felt like one overly professionalized system to another. And yet none of them actually gave me any answers, um, which is to say nothing of the fact that there was no human touch or sense of uh, another person caring or on the other side of it. And that was the backdrop, basically, for the, you know, the six years before I wrote that piece. That's what was happening in my personal life. In my professional life, I was, as a journalist, simply observing the world and observing how American society functioned. And as you noted, the opening anecdote in the piece happens when my husband and I are having dinner with a neuro-researcher who was the one person who did actually metaphorically and in reality, take our hand and help us through uh, our journey. And at some point we were sitting with him and I said to him, I need you to tell me if I did something wrong. I need you to explain to me if I did, did I simply not transmit to the system that I was in need? And so it's okay if it was my fault. I just want to know. And his answer was, no, this is actually what the system looks like now. And then he turned around and looked at me and said, so let me tell you something. Let me ask you something. Is it me? Am I the idiot that I open up my newspaper every day and everything I look at feels like garbage? It's either like bad propaganda or good propaganda. And I thought, oh, like we are now, we, the fact that both of us were looking to the other for reassurance that what we were going through was an anomaly, was the clue. Um, and I realized that it, neither one of those experiences was an anomaly. In fact, it, they were reflective of everything else we were seeing around the world, which was a sense of systems becoming decrepit and less and less able to answer the challenges and needs of people's lives. You know, the thing that this speaks to for me is so it's so interesting to me because I think what you've defined is something that we can go through life if we are on the the comfortable side of the brokenness question, not interacting with these systems on a regular basis. But then when we fall into them, when we have to interact with them, it's amazing how quickly we discover that these systems don't function the way that they ought to and that they become very impersonal very quickly. And you suddenly start casting yourself around kind of looking for an advocate. Um, the thought that is sort of in my mind is uh, how, uh, you know, when you're trying to get something resolved, let's say it's a, uh, an issue with an, you know, an airline flight or something like that, that's gotten canceled. You're, you're almost shopping around for the person who will finally help you, you know? And it's like, you're, you're navigating this faceless system and you know that, that you're, you're being given the runaround and you just need that one person who actually says, wait a minute, I'm going to, you know, do my job to the best of my ability and help this person in need out. And that to me is, is not the way those systems are expected to function. It's not the way that most Americans expect them to function. And yet they do. 
what's going into all of that? Because I mean, that's just one small example, but what's going into the brokenness of these various systems that surround us, whether they be very important ones like uh, the medical system uh, or less important ones, like, you know, whether I can get a washer dryer delivered on time. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Somebody said to me, uh, a friend of mine uh, said to me after I published my most recent piece, you know, Alana, how is it that all these systems broke at the same time? How is that possible? Can't there, like he was looking for me to defend sort of some monoclausal theory of brokenness. And to him, he thought this was very, I think, convincing, except for me, there's a very obvious answer, which is technology. Technology mm-hmm. came and completely radically comprehensively in every area of our lives overturned how things got done often in very, very good and wonderful ways. Um, It brought us enormous possibility, enormous efficiency, enormous uh, choice. It also has costs. And the costs of technology changing every single aspect of our lives are going to be as comprehensive as the benefits. And in this, I guess... I don't really see, this is where I sort of, my path diverges from more doomsdayer thinking people in that this exact thing happened after the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution radically changed every aspect of how people lived. It changed culture, communities, how we ate, uh, religion. This happens. It happens when we go through economic revolutions. We imagined we were going to go through this latest revolution and we were just going to all get email and an Amazon Prime account. But that wasn't the only thing we were going to get. And when you fully change the circulatory system, it is going to have ramifications for how the systems that you now, that you've had in place function. Some of them will not be able to keep up. Some of them will try to adjust in ways that make themselves function in corrupted or weird ways. And some of them will actually get better. Um, can I ask how much of this is due to a failure of, uh, of education in America? And I know it's a cliche, but it's one of these things where you see all of these ads uh for uh you know promoting stem and that kind of thing you know the the you know the comcast ads and things like that about you know oh the, the, you know all the wonderful things that you're going to be able to create through our you know nonprofit giving to you know raise stem among uh women and girls and that kind of thing um and then you look back at the idea of of the level of uh, mathematical capability required of astronauts in the past and that kind of thing. You, you sort of get the feeling that, uh, and of course there's also the, the cliche of, of, uh, people posting old questions from school exams, uh, and comparing them to ones that are, uh, you know, used today is, is a good deal of this just kind of using technology as a crutch for the lack of, of education that we have as kind of an endemic part of the American experience now? Um, I, I know that we're in a period of adjustment. I think that when 
when society goes through massive flux, um, everything needs to get adjusted and that includes education. So if I could ask your question differently, I, I guess the question is, is the adjustment here natural? Meaning what we we're just Mm -hmm. going through the growing pains of adjusting our educational systems to a new world, or is there something fundamentally rotten about the way that Americans are educated? And I think it's a really interesting question. I don't know the answer to it. Um, And I'm sure there are people who have better thoughts on it than I do. I would just say that my only, um, my only, my only point that I might add is that America is a really big country and that our educational systems yes. are quite different and textured. And so it's even hard to have a conversation about what Americans learn um, because I don't even know that that's whole. Anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about your latest piece, uh, Brokenism uh, and the way that you outlined the differences in experience for Americans on, on either side of that line. One of the things that happened after I wrote my piece was that I um, became a kind of central address for people who were trying to marinate around the same, in the same questions that I had posed in my first piece. And so I ended up receiving a lot of email um, from those kinds of people. And I, it, it, I also oriented myself differently in the world. And I started looking for, I started studying brokenness in a way that I think I might not have before that. Um, one of the people who wrote to me in the wake of that piece was a man named Ryan, who has since become a friend. And in one of my conversations last year with Ryan, he said to me something that was very evocative and it it was evocative because it felt like he was articulating something a lot of people were saying to me that I was hearing more often. And what he said was, I don't even know what side of the debate I'm on anymore. I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican. I'm not a liberal and I'm not a conservative. I don't know what these teams even mean these days. Um, The only thing I know I believe in is the premise of your piece, that the institutions of American life that I encounter feel fundamentally either decayed or corrupted to to the point of irrelevance for me. And that when I have fights with my friends, the people on the other side are not all liberals or leftists. They're not all right-wingers. They're not all anything, actually. They're the people who fundamentally believe in those institutions, believe they must continue to exist, believe that they are the answer to our problems, and me, who believe that those institutions are the obstacle in the way of progress. And he said, so I, the only thing I fundamentally know I believe in is brokenness. And when I started to see the world that way, I realized that actually that explained a lot of things I was seeing. It explained a lot of what other people saw as the traversing of left and right, um, particularly post-COVID, you know, where you have, on the one hand, you have formerly 
uh, right wing or Republican um, figures, public figures associated with uh, Republicanism now kind of seamlessly inside of uh, mainstream life, even on um, left-wing channels and in left-wing outlets, um, arguing for the importance of moderation and stability and institutions. And then on the other hand, you have people like mothers in Virginia electing Mm -hmm. different people because they were angry about COVID school closures, um, which is not Mm -hmm. a thing that I think anyone saw happening. And I don't, if you go back and you talk to a lot of those women, which I have, um, and you ask them if you, if they see themselves as Republicans or as right-wingers, they will say no, they do not. And that is not an aspiration. That's not how they see their future. That's not what they want. They, they don't identify that way. If you ask them if they imagine they're ever going to vote for a Democrat again, they also say no. So what is that person, Right. And the answer is they're a person that is in deep skeptical, in a deep skeptical moment about all labels and all institutions and entities. And when I started to see that, I started to realize that those teams were more interesting to me because part of what I loved about when I studied American history and American politics, I love that I found all sides of the American political debate compelling. And I wanted to get back there. I wanted to get back to a place where both teams had arguments that were interesting and, and where that I could see as realistically um, beneficial to the American future. When I split it that way, both of those teams felt exciting to me. And so I tried my best to articulate what it is to believe in the status quo and also what it is to believe that whatever is here is not working anymore and new things need to get built in its place. Uh, I had an experience uh, that came to mind when I was reading your piece uh, a few years ago where a colleague of mine uh, who lived in Washington, D.C. was trying to convince me uh, to move into the city. I've lived uh, across the river in Virginia for uh, most of my life. Uh, and the, uh, he was making these arguments about, you know, in favor of why the city was better and city life was good and that kind of thing. And I said to him, you know, DC is so corrupt, you know, just navigating the systems that exist in this city would be something that would be just constantly infuriating to me. Um, and, you know, citing the examples of, you know, so many different it was in the midst of, of just the latest kind of, uh, you know, school administrator being found to have stolen a bunch of money and that kind of thing, which is a routine experience in D.C. Uh, and uh, his response to that was, oh, oh, that's it's totally fine. You just need to get yourself a guy. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, I've just, I've got a guy and he helps me with everything. And, and I said, well, like what? And he said, well, you know, my daughter was having a tough time, uh, you know, uh, getting a driver's license and, uh, you know, I just called my guy and he took care of it. <laughs> and, and so it, it was kind of a depiction of what happens when the system is so broken that you need someone to basically in, navigate it as if you're dealing with a mafia or something like that. Um, and I think that there's certain people, especially a lot of people who are comfortable with the status quo, who have found some equivalent of that. 
a way to navigate around, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the phone line that works for the, 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 for them, you know, the, um, uh, a way to sort of not have to be, uh, with the same crowd of people who are frustrated by the status quo or view it as broken, uh, or, you know, have to uh, deal with things just because there's no other option before them. Right. I mean, I Do you think, think that, that that's, that, so one thing ahead. I would say is, is like, but let's, let's take something like Medicaid, right? If I, if we blew up Medicaid today, a lot of people would die. And mm-hmm. there's so the the, quite, the argument of status quo is, is is there enough systemic um, infrastructure and systemic value in something to save it? And can we? A status quoist might is not a person that says every single institution is perfect and must be and can be saved. Status quoists say that many of them have enough value in them that they should be reformed. That argument is valuable and is and and I would say I found it um, very clarifying and it sharpens my own way of observing the world because then it allows me to not put blanket, make blanket judgments and say every single thing needs to be burned to the ground. You can just say Harvard needs to be burned to the ground. Um, but I just, like, I just think like... I would say Harvard needs to be taxed. <laughs> that's that's I'll, I'll tax them before I burn them down, but that's fine. I'll probably react the same way. Um, but yeah, I, I think that um, I think that um, like I think that there the other the thing that I would say is is that there are social safety net systems in this country that are we, we have a country of three hundred thirty million people like it is huge and is a geographically enormous country like we can't simply burn systems to the ground that took us decades to build and frankly we're built well so. What, I, what I'm trying my best in the piece to do is to make people almost have two swords, like two different weapons that they can be able to use whenever they encounter an institution and they'll know which one to use. It's kind of it's probably a bad metaphor, but um, it's the best one I can come mm-hmm. up with my feet today. What's a way to determine whether you are on the broken side of the divide or the status quo side of the divide? I, so one of the funny things, maybe this is a, a, when I was starting tablet, um, I met a really terrific, actually marketing person who said to me, okay, so what's this magazine for? Is it for young juice, old juice? And I was like, it's for young juice and old juice. And he's like, okay, right-wing Jews or left-wing Jews? And I was like, I don't know if any political persuasion. Okay, okay, urban Jews or suburban Jews? And I was like, this is not what I'm thinking. And he said to me, Alana, what kind of Jew is it for? And I said, I guess it's for a personality type. And he said to me, well, the internet works on demographic groups. It's going to take you 10 years to build that. The truth is, is that we were both right. Um, I think I was right to want to build for personality. He was also right that it was going to take 10 years for the thing to actually find its groove. 
Um, and I almost feel the same way about brokenism and status quoism, that it's a personality type. And one of the fun parts of writing the piece as I wrote it um, is that I've been hearing and getting email from people saying, as I read your description of brokenism, I realized that felt like me. Or I know what I am now. I'm a status quoist because the language that you use resonated in a deep way with me and it felt like what I feel. So as gauzy or kind of woo-woo as it may sound, I really feel like it's a it's a posture or an orientation that may have some, something to do with your what you previously identified as politically, but also may not. And may just be more about your own history, the history of your family, your geography, where you come from. Um, and I think that it just makes you look at the world and look at these institutions in one way or the other. So I, I don't know. It's like, I wish that maybe I should figure out a way to develop some, one of those like internet personality tests for it that like then goes viral. But as of now, I, I haven't figured out how to do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that would be something that would uh, uh, fly well with your uh, marketing friend. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> so um I want to think about this in the political context for a moment. At the end of uh, the coverage that we had on the uh, evening of, of election night, well into the morning at about 2.30 in the morning. So I'm sure uh, not a lot of people had stayed up uh, that long uh, to see me say this. I made the comment that I felt like the message coming out of this election was one of uh, both populism and normalcy, meaning that people have a lot of populist concerns, uh, but they also want a sense of normalcy and not chaos from the candidates who represent those concerns. Uh, and to me, I think a lot of that is fulfilled by your frame here in the sense that it's talking about people who are frustrated with the way things are, or the way they feel that things are going, but also don't actually want to see, you know, uh, uh, government buildings on fire, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, either, either literally or, or, uh, in practice, um, that they, they want something that's between those two things that recognizes the brokenness of these systems, but then seeks to achieve, uh, a level of change that feels like, uh, moving toward an actual goal, as opposed to saying things need to be turned into ash first. That to me seems to be echoed through a lot of American politics with a few exceptions where you have some elections where people are just like, ah, you know, it's so bad. We have to burn it all down. But that the American tendency seems to trend back toward that. You know, I just want a politician who doesn't make me feel like things are, are going to explode every, every minute. How can politicians and, and leaders uh, within you know, government and, and industry and the like, uh, try to achieve something that would speak to these concerns, speak to the people who feel like these things are broken, but also to the status quo folks who don't want to see, um, you know, an American system that has produced good outcomes for them, uh, in large part, uh, burned to the ground. Um, I don't know. Um, I, the, the 
The one thing that I think increasingly um, interests me is I'm really interested in local politics more than I have Mm -hmm. ever been before, Um, in part because some of these some of these challenges start to feel much more manageable and also harder, but in a more manageable way when you actually have a distinct community that you know that you're dealing with and addressing. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, some areas of movement um, or some areas that feel exciting to me are very local. And they're happening at, happening at much more local levels. Um, in part, I think that's because when you meet your voters on a regular basis, and when you really don't have a national audience to answer to, but you have a very local audience to answer to, you can embody both of those things. You can. It is easier to embody both brokenism and status quoism when you're talking about a specific DMV office, like it just yes. makes it easier <laughs> to have that conversation because you're talking about it with the people who actually have to go into that DMV office, who know exactly what you're talking about, who know when you talk about the door that keeps falling off the hinges, they know because the door nearly fell on them. Right. That's a different conversation than when you start talking about, national trends, because inevitably, and I think rightly, you start to, the the, the conversation becomes much less about practically benefiting people's lives and much more about um, rhetoric and about uh, posturing. And the internet obviously makes this a lot worse because now you're posturing also for an international audience. Um, So, I don't know. Uh, It's my way of kind of wriggling out of your question, but it's also uh, my way of saying that like when I think about how to best do both of those things, my answer is to be at the street level of reality. Mm -hmm. I am going to uh, close this out by asking you to uh, listen to a quote that I think fulfills uh, a lot of what you're talking about from uh, C.S. Lewis It is one of the evils of rapid diffusion of news that the sorrows of all the world come to us every morning. I think each village was meant to feel pity for its own sick and poor whom it can help. And I doubt if it is the duty of any private person to fix his mind on ills, which he cannot help. This may even become an escape from the works of charity. We really can do for those we know. A great many people now seem to think that the mere state of being worried is in itself meritorious. I don't think it is. We must, if it so happens, give our lives for others. But even while we're doing it, I think we're meant to enjoy our Lord and in him, our friends, our food, our sleep, your jokes and the bird song and the frosty sunrise. I think that's what you're talking about here. It's the kind of thing that says it demands something greater of us than just posturing on the internet, on social media for other audiences, and it requires us to do something in our own village, uh, even down to making sure that that door gets fixed at the DMV. Yeah. Um, he said it a little better than me. <laughs> Alana Newhouse, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks for having me. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. 
So I wanted to uh, share with you just a little bit of perspective on what we are seeing coming out of China over the past uh, couple of days. You may have, uh, you know, seen some of the different things that have come out of uh, the uh, protests and movements that have been happening in the streets there. First, I want to say that, you know, having been to uh, the Hong Kong protest during the height uh, before the pandemic, um, the thing that you need to understand and respect is that when you see a crowd of people in the streets, they actually represent a much larger group of people who are not willing to go into the streets because they fear for their lives and their livelihood. Uh, in China, if you are uh, you know, identified as being a participant in these protests, they can essentially throw the book at you and treat you as if you have participated in every crime or every, you know, uh, act that was done by any protester. It's um, a horrible system and one that is designed to crush dissent against the government. Uh, but when you see this kind of revolt uh, going on within the midst of China, uh, you should understand that it, it speaks of a much larger group of people who uh, share those same concerns, uh, but for their own security, for their family's security, are unwilling to march in, in the streets. Cindy Yu has a piece at The Spectator uh, today uh, on this whole uh, dynamic that I wanted to read a portion of to you. Protests appear to be breaking out in several major Chinese cities in what has been a week of horrors for China's zero COVID policy. Rare displays of public anger have risen to levels not seen since the Shanghai lockdown and perhaps even since the death of the whistleblower doctor Li Wenling uh, three years ago who died of COVID. Uh, my own insertion. Chinese social media lit up the night he died, and a similar level of frustration and pain is being shared online right now. I should say, they say he died of COVID. The latest tragedy is the death of 10 people after a fire broke out in their lockdown high-rise in Urumqi, the uh, capital of the remote region of Xinjiang, leading to angry scenes and video on Saturday night. There are reports of police using pepper spray with posts about protests on social media being immediately deleted. One video shows crowds in Arumkai uh, amassing outside a government building demanding an end to lockdown. Another shows university students in Nanjing uh, uh, gathering on campus. I'm speaking for those whose family members died in the fire. I'm speaking for all my suffering compatriots across the country. In universities across the country, students are posting banners repeating the slogan of the bridge man, food, not COVID tests, freedom, not lockdown. Protests seem to have broken out in Shanghai, Beijing, and Wuhan. This has been a testing week for Chinese patients. Already, public confidence in the zero COVID policy was at a low. Earlier this month, the government claimed it had optimized its pandemic control by reducing quarantine days and other measures. The city of Shizhuang, a population 11 million, opened up overnight. But as I wrote at the time, the government needed to steal its nerves in the face of rising infection numbers if China was to have any hope of opening up in the future. In the end, just nine days later, as infection rose, the city was locked down again. The authorities flip-flopping destroyed any hope that the end to zero COVID was in sight. Across the country, local governments ended up trying to obey the will of Beijing while controlling the situation on the ground by locking down their districts without calling this a lockdown. Euphemisms include fluid management and a period of silence. 
Analysis from the brokerage firm Nomura shows that a record number of 412 million people in China are under some kind of lockdown measures right now. I want you to think about this in the context of the American experience. We can be rightly frustrated by the fact that Gretchen Whitmer prevented us from buying seeds, that schools were shut down for months on end, damaging children in ways that uh, they will live with for the rest of their lives. But I also want you to see what real authoritarianism looks like. Authoritarianism is something that the media likes to invoke quite a lot when it comes to the American right. They talk about the danger of Nazism, of fascism, of the return of you know belief in authoritarian gods and that kind of thing. And yet, Anthony Fauci can go on television this weekend on the Sunday shows and praise the Chinese to high heaven, excuse their unwillingness to share information about COVID with us, uh, essentially pretend that none of those sins exist. And he's talking about the most authoritarian regime on planet Earth, a regime that continually murders people, commits genocide, engages in totally crushing of religious dissent, of political dissent from its authoritarian message. When you see the people defending Chinese Communist Party policies, and I include everyone in this bucket, you know, not just the, the elites, but also the people who are apparently just useful idiots for their regime. You are seeing people defend one of the most authoritarian regimes in the history of the planet, and certainly the most dominant authoritarian regime that we have today on the planet. Understand that history will be the judge of whether they were in the right or, in my opinion, very much in the wrong. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.